Our scripture text this morning is in the book of John, the last of the four Gospels, chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciple came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And altogether there were so many that the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. Now, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the, to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, this is a delightful sight to look out and see uh, so many faces and uh, new folks. We're so glad that you're here. Um, extended family of some of our church family here who we've come to know and love over the years. You're here visiting, and we're grateful to see you. It's kind of like a homecoming in many ways. And I just trust that you've already experienced something of the joy and the peace that comes from worshiping and fellowshipping in the light of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we've gathered today, and, uh, and I trust it's already been a blessing to you. Um, really, today caps off a wonderful weekend. Uh, we began on Friday evening by uh, commemorating the, the death of our Savior, and uh, what a special time that was. I just want to say thank you to all of the folks here at the church who have contributed and participated, from the women's ministry team to the Kenesha small group to the musicians and scripture readers and so many of you, all of you, have participated, and uh, you've been such a blessing to the rest of us on what is most certainly a highlight on our church's calendar. And I hope you realize that this weekend is not just another few squares on the calendar. The events that we remember this weekend stand at the dead center of human history. They, they form the very heart of the gospel. And it's good that we would be reminded of this gospel all, all weekend long and every day 
This is the gospel that's been preached to us. This is the gospel that we've received. This is the gospel in which we stand. And this is the gospel by which we are being saved. I want to just remind you of the passage that Pastor Matt read at the beginning of our service from uh, the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In the 15th chapter, he reminds them, he says, I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sin in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, many of whom are still alive, Paul was able to write. And so Paul is reminding us that to believe in the events of this weekend, especially the event that we commemorate today, is not to engage in wishful thinking. The cross and the empty tomb are not only the most central events of human history, they're also the most attested, the most verified. If, you, if you've staked your life on the resurrection, I assure you today that you're not the crazy one. The crazies are the resurrection deniers of the sort that were in Corinth then in the first century. They're crazy because there were hundreds of witnesses to the risen Christ who were still alive at the time, and you could have just asked them. Do you remember that horrific mass shooting that took place at Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012? Well, afterwards, to add insult to injury, some whack job named Alex Jones peddled the conspiracy theory that that whole thing was a giant hoax, he says, and it was carried out by crisis actors. He, he believed it to be this grand scheme to provoke sweeping gun control legislation. And that's a very difficult, not to mention despicable, line to take, given the fact that there were eyewitnesses to that atrocity. And there were dozens of parents who had to bury their children. In, in 2018, many of those parents, so, they sued Jones for defamation. And he was forced to admit that he was wrong and uh, that he had been suffering from some form of psychosis at the time. In the same way, the psychotic and delusional ones are those who deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have to do so against hundreds of eyewitnesses, including his disciples, to whom the resurrected Jesus was revealed multiple times. And this morning, in our passage, John 21, we get to look at one of those post-resurrection appearances, it's an appearance that greatly strengthened the faith of those early disciples, and I trust it will strengthen ours as well. So if, you're, if your Bible's accidentally closed on your laps, uh, go ahead and turn it back open to John chapter 21, and we'll look at the first 14 verses. And we'll consider four Ps 
from this passage. Those of you who were here last week, I suppose you discovered where I get my penchant for uh, alliterated points. Uh, I'm just trying to follow in my father's footsteps. So the first P that we need to look at is the party. And by party, I don't mean like the kind of thing. I mean the group of people who were present for this particular appearance of the resurrected Christ. I'm, I'm talking about the people to whom the Lord purposely revealed himself. These, these are the people that, who the Lord is really seems to be actively pursuing to reassure them and to restore them. Uh, should the case require. And I'm speaking, of course, of the disciples. I saw a a church sign one Easter that said, Jesus loves his peeps. And that's a bit cheesy for my taste, a bit too marshmallowy. But it's hard to deny. Jesus loves his people. And post-resurrection, he's on a mission to comfort them, to confirm them, and eventually to commission them in a great way. If, if you or I were Jesus, I'm guessing we would have very different priorities after raising from the dead, right? Like after busting out of the grave, we would probably make a beeline to Pilate's palace or, or Herod's, you know, to, to deliver an epic Booyah! You know, uh, from there we'd speed on over to the Sanhedrin so that we could say, in your face, to the chief priest, to the scribes. That's if we, you know, lived in the 90s. That's what we would say. But can you, can you imagine the ministry that a resurrected Jesus could have in Galilee and in Judea among all of those skeptics and unbelievers, he would be way more fruitful in terms of followers in those 40 days after his resurrection than he was in the previous three years combined, we reason. That's the way we figure, and that would be our strategy. But do you notice that Jesus isn't focused on convincing his detractors? He's focused on comforting his disciples. So he comes to them again, as verse 14 says, for the third time, which probably means here the third time that he revealed himself to the disciples as a group. He had appeared to individuals of them, but this was the third time it seems that he revealed himself to them as a group. And there's something very complete about the number three. I don't know if you've noticed this, but speakers and writers and comedians and musicians, they talk about the rule of three. It's the principle that uh, a trio or a triad of words or phrases or characters or whatever, three is much more satisfying than any other combination. When you stack it up in a three, it brings a sort of closure of confirmation. Just to take a couple of examples, in the Jewish mindset, if a person was dead for three days, then they were really dead. 
You know, you wait out that three days and there's no chance of uh, revival or resuscitation. That person is completely dead. It's the rule of three. This is why Jesus rises on the third day. So there could be no mistaking the fact that Jesus truly died. A second example could be found in this same chapter, if we were to go on into verses 15 and following, where we see Jesus dealing very graciously with Peter, who had previously denied him three times. So now Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? To which Peter responds three times, I love you. I love you. You know I love you. And this represents, doesn't it, complete restoration after a complete repudiation. So those are two examples. I suppose the rule of three also dictates that I can't just give you two examples. Um, it would be much more satisfying if I gave you another example. So here it is. Our passage today reveals the third time that Jesus reveals himself to a group of his disciples. And this represents a, a total and truly satisfying and confirming of his resurrection life and of his resurrection love. It's really a, a beautiful passage. Now, not all of the disciples are in this particular party. Judas, tragically, is absent. He had betrayed Jesus, and he had now gone out from the group, demonstrating that he was never truly part of it, and you know the rest of his story. But of the 11 remaining disciples, seven are present on this occasion, and seven is another one of those complete numbers that you find in scripture. So we, we understand here with this group of seven that that is a, a strong sample that stands in really for the whole group of disciples. Of these seven, some are named, some are not. John, the author, is he's among this number. So you can, you can trust what he says here because he has lived it. He was there. You can, be you can be assured that this account is completely trustworthy. But in his characteristic, self-effacing kind of way, he doesn't draw attention to himself and he doesn't name himself. But he's there in the party as one of the sons of Zebedee. Now, the first two people named are of particular interest, I think. You've got Simon Peter, who's listed first. Um, probably, you know, right off the bat, we could say he's listed first because he's, he's the leader of this band of disciples. He's got the strongest personality. He's emerged. Even Jesus has sort of um, anointed him as the, the leader of this apostolic band. But he's also listed first because he is going to be the focus of much of the material in this chapter. As, as I've already mentioned, as, as this passage moves on, Jesus is singling out Peter for special attention to restore him, to, uh, to bring him back into the fold and into his arms after he had stumbled so grievously. And in the second place is listed another stumbler, Thomas 
who uh, just before this passage, we, if, if we had read um, earlier, we discovered that he was a doubter uh, to the resurrection. But because of the great love and the condensa- uh, uh, condescension of, of Jesus who came and, and stood with Thomas and invited him to place his fingers and his hands in the holes that he, where he had been pierced, because of that, Thomas could be brought to the place where he could say, my Lord and my God. Uh, I, as I mentioned to you on my very first sermon at this church, uh, I think we, I think the term doubting Thomas is a bit of an unfortunate misnomer uh, because that's not how that story ends. He's a believing Thomas. But it's interesting, isn't it, that this list is headed by two doubters. They, they've got their doubts, they've got their denials, but they are both dealt with in a very loving and gracious way by Jesus. One of them before this passage, and then the next one right after this passage. In other words, our text is flanked by the Lord's gracious dealings with his people who have struggled with, with failure and, and faithlessness which helps us to understand what this passage is all about. This passage is all about Jesus' revelation of his resurrected self, and that for the purpose of strengthening and encouraging and confirming his saints. The point is that Jesus loves his peeps. We go from the first two disciples mentioned in verse 2, to the last two words of verse 2. It says that these seven disciples were together. Were together. And we better not just skip over those two words as if they're just so natural as to be unnecessary. Think about how things were not too very long ago. Jesus had been handed over to be crucified And among all of the other prophecies that had been fulfilled that day was that one prophecy that said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And sure enough, Christ's death resulted in the the disbanding of the disciples. How, How could they be a party if the party leader was buried in a tomb? These were devastating days, and it was a day where the, the disciples themselves were even fractured and um, failing. They were holed away someplace. And if Jesus' death meant disbanding for the disciples, his resurrection means their reassembly. One of the greatest evidences for Jesus' resurrection is the otherwise inexplicable transformation of these men from shaken and sniveling and separated to emboldened and believing a confident, united band of brothers. How is that possible other other than they, they had come to truly believe that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead? And so how wonderful those words are that we read that these men were together. They were reconstituted because of the resurrection. And brothers and sisters, have you considered this? 
Have you considered that our present party here today, right here in these pews, has the identical explanation? The only reason that we're in this place together is that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Well, we've only dealt with the first two verses, but already I hope that you're beginning to understand just how much the Lord Jesus Christ loves you. How, how intent he is on establishing your faith and establishing you in community with other believers. Let's look at a second P, which is the problem. The problem. In verse 3, Peter announces to the group that he's going fishing, and the rest of the party says, we're going with you. And they are, after all, right there by the Sea of Tiberias, a.k.a. the Sea of Galilee. And they are, after all, fishermen. Many commentators view this fishing trip in a, in a pretty negative light. And they, they believe it to be some kind of return to their former lifestyle. That these disciples are, are sort of abandoning their master's calling on their life. And I'm, I'm pretty confident that that's not a good analysis of what's going on here. I'm pretty sure that that is reading way too much into things to say something like that. But I think I do detect just at least a little bit of resignation and unsettledness in Peter's voice as he makes this suggestion. We know that in those 40 days following Jesus' resurrection, he wasn't constantly with the disciples, that he was um, appearing to different people in different places. And neither had Jesus at this point formally commissioned them to the task of worldwide disciple-making. And so it's very reasonable, I think, to, to believe that these seven were, at this point in time, somewhat aimless and uncertain. And fishing is a great diversion. Do you, do you even need an excuse to go fishing? I don't think so. Fishing, fishing is not the problem. The problem is stated for us in the second half of verse 3. It says, they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. That's the problem, pure and simple. I, I really have nothing profound for you at this point. But the point is that in our lives, we, we do confront many problems. Thing, things don't often go the way that, that we expect them to go. Things don't go the way that they were designed to go. And, and by that, I mean, if you think back to God's original creation in Genesis 1 and 2, when you think back to God's intention that mankind would have dominion over everything else that he had made, even over the fish of the sea. Then you think about the disciples' predicament, their problem. The fish in the sea of Tiberias are stubbornly rebelling. They're like, not today, boys. And I've been in this exact scenario. I've been uh, skunked while fishing on too many occasions to count. And it's frustrating. 
But at the end of the day, it's not that big of a deal for me because I don't need to catch fish to live. I don't need to catch fish to sell. I don't need to, you know, to make my living off of it, to provide for my family. Fishing is, is just a hobby for me. But fishing is not just a hobby for these disciples, for Peter and James and John and the others. A lot is riding on a night of fishing, and to come up empty is a big problem. And I don't know what your situation is exactly, but I, I wonder if you're experiencing any problems today. I'm not so much talking about inconveniences like you know the Easter cream egg that you got must have been last year's batch because you know the cream was a little bit too thick and it had started to crystallize a bit I'm not talking about that sort of thing I'm talking about problems that are significantly affecting your your life and your livelihood and your relationships and these problems just might be looming so large for you right now that it's difficult for you to even fully enter into the joy of this morning. You know, pastels seem entirely the wrong palette, given the severity of your problems. And so the question is, what do you do? What do you do? Well, for some help, let's move on to the third P. The third P, which is the person. And I, I'm just betting that you were expecting this third point to be, you know, like the solution or some other word that means that but starts with P. That's the way our minds work. You know, we've got a problem, then we want to know what the solution is. We've got a dilemma, and so we're desperate to know what is the fix. And here's what something else we do. We, we expect that the solution is going to involve something that, that we can do, you know, like just tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. I, I want to fix my problem. And that's a very th common thing for a pastor and a counselor to hear from a troubled person, by the way. People come um, broken and desperate and they're like, just tell me what do I need to do? But it's already the wrong approach. I want to just gently suggest to you it's the wrong approach because here's what you really need you need a particular person you don't need a ready-made solution you need a resurrected savior but we're getting a, a little bit ahead of ourselves let's just back up verse 4 tells us that as day was breaking Jesus stood on the shore Yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. We, the readers, are, are let in on it. Some, we, we have knowledge now that the disciples didn't at that time, which is that the man standing on the shore is the resurrected Lord. And the reason that the disciples didn't know this and didn't know that it was him, it's not a statement about their, their unbelief or their hardness of heart. Okay, it's simply, I think, that the men are in a boat out on the water about a foot, football field away, as verse 8 says. Well, verse 8 doesn't say exactly that, but 
And morning is breaking, which means that everything's still kind of a little hazy and backlit, and it's hard to, very difficult to identify a figure on the shore if you have no other context. This person yells out, children, do you have any fish? Which is a very common thing for people to yell out to fishermen. First of all, the greeting isn't strange. You might be taken aback by that, children. But in that time and culture, it's very common greeting to say something like that, children, referring even to people of your own age and, and station. This is like when a, a guy says to a group of other guys, hey boys, you know, this is, I've discovered this is not so common here because people look at me funny, but where I grew up, this was very common. You go into a, a locker room at your men's league and you say to the guys, including the 50-year-olds and the 60-year-olds, you say something like, what's up, boys? And there's nothing weird there at all. It's very familiar. It's very fraternal. This is, this is like a, a term of endearment. This is, a, this is as uh, up close and personal as guys get. They call each other boys. So nothing weird there. And it's also obligatory if you see fishermen that you ask them if they've caught anything. That's just something you have to do. You know that, right? And of course, it's also obligatory for fishermen to not be forthcoming about the answer. You know, if they, if they are having a record haul, uh, fishermen will always downplay that to people that are asking so as to not let anyone in on their secret. You know, on the other hand, if they're getting skunked, they're, they're going to be, I don't know what the word is, up playing that with some, they're going to give you some obscure non-answer. They, they, they hold their cards real close to the chest. But in this case, notice that the disciples are so exhausted and so defeated that they very straightforwardly say, no, haven't caught anything all night. So this person says, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now maybe right now you're thinking that I've just contradicted myself. I, you know, I've set this whole thing up saying that in our problems we primarily don't need to do something, we primarily need a person. But here, in the face of their problem, the disciples are directed to do something. Yes, technically, but you need to really see past that. This is not a thing to do. Okay, you understand this is not something that you do. This is not a secret fishing technique. The, the disciples would not have been like smacking themselves in the forehead saying, what a bunch of idiots we are. Sorry, Johnny. We shouldn't say idiots. What? How foolish we've been. All this time we've been fishing on the left side of the boat. Why did we never try the right? No doubt they've been trying left and right and fore and aft. Every single combination and permutation, the whole 360 degree fan all night long. Casting the net on the right is not something to do. It's designed to point to the person. 
And it works. The text says, now, they were not able to haul in the net because of the quantity of fish. It works. Not, not in that it results in a great catch, but that it results in what it was intended to do, which is to reveal the person. And notice in verse 7 that John immediately knows who is behind this. John is characteristically reluctant, as I said earlier, to draw attention to himself. But that's what the text means when it says the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's not going to say, hey, and, and I got this right away. But he does want, we, we do need to understand that John characteristically is the most spiritually sensitive of this bunch. And he recognizes his Savior immediately. And I think it's important that we recognize and understand how it is that John recognizes Jesus. I want you to really notice that he doesn't do this by sight. He's not recognizing Jesus by sight. Remember, this figure is far away, and it's only the dawn's early light, and it's all by faith. John recognizes Jesus by his deeds, by his signature moves, if you will. And this must have been a flashback for John and eventually a flashback for these other disciples because this has happened before. This same thing has happened before. It, it happened at the very beginning. In fact, this is the thing that prompted their discipleship in the first place. It happened one morning that they had no fish at the end of a whole long shift. And Jesus suggested that they try the other side of the boat. And the result? So many fish that they couldn't haul it in. So many fish that the net broke. This is one of Jesus' signature moves. You know, like a Denny Savard spinorama or, or a Michael Jordan fadeaway or a Steph Curry long three or a, a Mike Tyson, you know, peekaboo or a Mike Tyson ear bite. I think we can all probably guess what part of Mike Tyson's chocolate Easter bunny he ate first. <laughs> a miraculous catch of fish. This is classic Jesus. This is classic Jesus. And John recognizes it immediately. He says to Peter, it is the Lord. And now we get to see Peter's characteristic response. Again, I want you to notice that it's a response of faith. It's not based on what his eyes see. It's, it's based on knowing that it is Jesus. And impulsively, and I mean that in the very best way possible, it's, this is a, the beautiful, good kind of impulsively, Peter throws himself into the water to swim or wade however he can get to Jesus as fast as he can, he wants to get to Jesus. The boat is going to take way too long to get there, and he wants to be with Jesus now. And thankfully, he has the presence of mind to put some clothes on. You know, he's, he's kind of stripped down to the bare minimum um, to actively engage in, in the hard work of fishing. So, but, so he 
gets his clothes together. But you might also recognize this as one of Peter's signature moves. He's flung himself overboard to get to Jesus. He's done that before. And I want to suggest to you that this is exactly the right response when you apprehend the risen Christ by faith. When Jesus Christ reveals himself to you, this is exactly the right response. Whether you're a person here today who maybe right now for the very first time in your life are given the spiritual discernment to recognize Jesus for who he truly is as the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the resurrected Lord of the universe, or whether you're here and you've been a Christian for a long time and, and you can recognize Jesus by his word and by his works, your response should be the same. Like John, your response should be to declare, it is the Lord. And like Peter, with reckless abandon, to flee to him, to embrace him, to worship him with all that you have, all that you are. And then finally, I want you to see the provision. The provision. I'm not only talking about this record haul of fish, as if the fish weren't enough provision. What the disciples discovered as soon as they were able to row the boat ashore is that Jesus had prepared a meal for them. Here's what they found, verse 9. A charcoal fire with fish laid out on it and bread. And there you have it, the, the first Easter sunrise breakfast, kind of. And, and just like the one that we had laid out for us this morning, it's, it's ready to go. It's, it's gracious hospitality. It's been, it's been planned and prepared very thoroughly by a thoughtful host. It's not just a fire. There's a special word that's used here. It's a charcoal fire. And that's a, that might not seem like a big deal to you, but it is a big deal. You know, uh, I think kids need to learn to understand this. You know, when you're out camping with your family, and as soon as you build the campfire, the kids are pestering you about s'mores, right? They, they've seen the ingredients in the cooler. They, they know that s'mores are on the menu, and they want them now. And you have to patiently explain to them that you've got to wait until the fire dies down. You know, you've got all these flames, and, you know, you're going to burn your marshmallow as soon as you stick it in there. And not only that, but the flames are green. Uh, the, the chemicals from the pressure-treated wood that you accidentally put in there, it still, it still haven't burned off. So kids, you've got to wait. You've got to wait for s'mores. I don't know, another half hour or so. And then you get the, the coals, and it's perfect for roasting marshmallows. No waiting with Jesus. His fire is ready to go. It's perfect for warming wet fishermen. It's perfect for cooking. And they're going to be cooking for a while. Jesus says, bring some of that fish that you just caught. There's 153 of them, 
which by the way, if you're, if you're skeptical about all of this, just, just think about that little detail. That, that's a detail put in by someone who was there, someone who's very careful. You, you have to believe that they counted. Let's see how many fish that we got. And there was 153 of them, and they were large. This is going to be a feast. They can eat their fill. They can eat as much as they want, and then they can sell the rest. Loaves and fishes multiplied. This is another one of Jesus' signature moves. Back in John 6, and once again, this took place on the, sea, on the banks of the Sea of Tiberias, Jesus fed the 5,000. And there too, it was a very clear sign about who this person was. The people recognized at the, at the close of that passage, they, they could say, this, this guy, this man is the prophet who was to come into the world. And here too, there is absolutely no mistaking who Jesus is. On, on reaching the shore, there's no need for the disciples to, you know, shake this guy's hand and introduce themselves. Because as verse 12 says, they knew it was the Lord. And that really becomes the repeated refrain of our passage. This is a passage that is bookended in verses 1 and 14 with the idea that Jesus is revealing himself to the disciples. And in the middle of that, those bookends, you've got this passage that all throughout is highlighting with this repeated phrase that that revelation is totally effective because you've got these men saying, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. They knew that it was the Lord. There's no doubt. Who, who else is this kind? Who else is this compassionate? Who, who else is this hospitable, this powerful? Who else comes back from the dead? Who else cares so much about our, our spiritual needs that he would take on flesh and dwell here among us and then go to the cross and die in our place for our sin? Who else would rise three days later for our justification? And then later to, to ascend to the right hand of his father where he rules and he reigns. And not only that, but he intercedes for us. Who else? And who else cares so much about our physical needs? Your, your pains, your, your hurts, they're not insignificant to Jesus. He cares and he, he ministers to them. He, he cares so much about our physical needs that he feeds us and he he, he comes alongside and ministers uh, to us. Who is this that strengthens us and encourages us by his presence and by his power such that we are compelled to just fling ourselves at his feet and then to get up on our feet and go out into the world to declare that he lives and that he loves and that he saves? Who else? Do we... Do we dare even ask? It is the Lord. It is the resurrected Lord. I trust that today you are found flinging yourself on him and trusting in him by faith. Amen? Amen. Amen.